So um, I want to give just a little tiny bit of explanation for this. Um, I mentioned doing something in the doctrine of God this Sunday night and next Sunday night. I wanted to do something, um, and, and we might revisit this. There's opportunity for that in the future. But I wanted to do something a little bit different, I guess. Um, and the fact is, talking about God should not be something different. But we so, in our day and age, are focused on ourselves. You know, we talk about everyone's like, what's my identity and who am I really? And we get wrapped up in, in social, political issues. And all of those things are important, but we're never going to figure any of that out unless we know God first. And that's why a lot of people are very messed up, because they're doing it without a knowledge of God, attempting social change, attempting to figure out who they are, but we can only do that in light of who God is. Um, so that's a, that's a little bit the background and, and what inspired uh, doing this a little bit. And I'm, I'm coming at it this week and next from just a very particular aspect of who God is that we'll talk about as we go forward. I'm going to be reading, um, my plan is to read the first seven verses of Psalm 145 this week and then the rest of the psalm next week. Let's listen to God's holy and infallible word. A psalm of praise we read of David. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. That's God's word. I want to apologize a little bit for my voice. Um, I had issues with my voice during chemotherapy, and then many months after that, I've been fine, fine, fine. But um, there was a varsity girls basketball game last night, and I was really quiet for the first half, and then I kind of got into it. I never yelled anything to the refs. It was all encouraging stuff to our girls, but I guess I thought my voice was invincible, and it's not. I'm, and, and I knew I wasn't preaching this morning, but it's still a little rough. So we read uh, from the Belgic Confession earlier. It, the Belgic Confession could almost say it's like a mini theology book. Um, it's a little bit different than the, both the Heidelberg Catechism and even the Canons of Dort actually have lots and lots of practical application as they explain the doctrines. You know that of the Catechism. It's also true of the Canons of Dort. Um, so the Belgian Confession by itself is just a little drier, which is why I'm like, it's a mini theology book. Obviously, it's good stuff. There are applications to it, but it doesn't get into that as much. So it covers what the Bible teaches, right, about salvation, uh, the end times, the church, what we believe about Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit, creation, fall, sin. Um, 
the Heidelberg Catechism does those things too, but in a different way. So it's a summary of the Bible's teachings, and we might get into that and why it was written a little bit next week. But if, if you were going to summarize the teachings of the Bible and sort of organize what the Bible says, how would you begin? The Heidelberg Catechism, question answer one, begins with ourselves, right? What is my only comfort in life and in death? And then from there goes to Jesus. So the Belgic Confession begins differently. The Belgic Confession begins with God, right? That's what we read and what you heard. John Calvin, the great reformer, begins his most famous work, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, by telling us that the knowledge of God and the knowledge of humankind, they're intertwined. And so I think you can make a good case based on what he says and just based on reality for starting either with us or God as you talk about the faith. Uh, but as much as I love question and answer one of the Heidelberg Catechism, I really like what the Belgic Confession does as well. Uh, because, of course, it all begins with God. Literally, right? History, salvation, time itself, creation, the world. It, it was always him, even before uh, the universe existed. There's a lot to talk about when we talk about God. In fact, I, I sometimes, there's a CRC pastor's Facebook page, and every once in a while, if I want to generate ideas beyond uh, the people I normally talk with uh, through sermons, um, I'll throw something out there about, and I did about this, and they're like, well, how are you going to do that in a couple of messages? That just doesn't make any sense. So this is, this is what we're going to do. Um, we could talk about the Trinity, talking about the doctrine of God, right? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Probably the most foundational doctrine of the Christian faith, the Trinity. But very mysterious, but yet one of our most foundational beliefs. Um, we could talk about the names of God. I saw a devotional online that has meditations on a hundred names of God in the Bible. And I don't think, I think there are more than a hundred even. Um, and so, but we're going to focus on uh, what's in the Belgic Confession here in Article 1. But first I have to say that um, before you know, when we talk about God, we have to recognize that he's so great. we got to say this. We can't just start talking about God. He's so great that he, he is far beyond our understanding. He's far beyond our language. But what some folks, how some folks describe this is that though he is, he very graciously stoops you know like we stoop to talk to a little child that's why they use the word stoop to give us his word and use our language to describe himself so we can grasp something of who he is and john calvin again he says thinking of that stooping language this fits and might help you remember that god uses baby talk with us you think of a parent trying to explain the world to a baby, a toddler. Well, you don't try to explain everything, just what that child needs to know. And God does that in his word 
on all levels, but especially when he's talking about himself, because he's so far beyond us, just what we need to know and, and can grasp. And, and, and what's in Article 1 of the Belgic Confession that we're going to focus, focus on this week and next are the at, what we call the attributes of God. Um, they're kind of like characteristics, but for God, we use a special word, attributes, because when we talk about characteristics, it's like, well, this person is, is shy or outgoing or um, idealistic, athletic, musical, but this, this is God we're talking about. It's not like characteristics. And though God is who he is all at once perfectly without any distinctions, with our little minds, what we've got to do is divide things up and take one thing at a time if we're ever going to begin to comprehend him. And we see some of those distinctions that, from our perspective, need to be made in the attributes that the Belgic Confession has. Uh, But before we get to those, um, there's a bigger and broader, a more general distinction to help us grasp him, and that's the difference between two main types of attributes. And maybe you remember hearing about this before, but there are incommunicable attributes that he has, and these are attributes, characteristics, we could say, that we don't share with God because there's a creator-creature distinction. And then there are communicable attributes which we do share with God because there's a, a creator-creature relationship, right? Um, so we could say that the incommunicable attributes are the ones that only God has because he's so far beyond us. Communicable attributes are ones that human beings can share a little bit in because we are created in his image and he calls us and made a way for us to have a relationship with him, okay? So several of the, we're going to start with the fun ones, the incommunicable attributes. I'm going to do a little bit of an explanation and then try to give a practical application of each one. Um, The Belgic Confession leads off with calling God a simple being. Did you catch that? So simplicity is one of his attributes, As you would probably guess, the most common use of the word simple, which is like easy to understand, simple-minded, slow, dim-witted, is not what we're saying about God here. But there's a biological use of the word simple, which means not compound. There's a chemical use of the word simple, which means unmixed, and that gets us closer All of us are composite creatures. We're complex. We talk about body, mind, soul, spirit, emotions, heart. And guess what? All those things, and you know this in your own life, they can be going in different places at once, but not God. We can't even comprehend this. We have gender Biologically, we're part of the animal kingdom. We have much in common with animals in terms of our DNA, but there are parts, aspects that we have 
added on in a sense. God breathed into us the breath of life, reason, intelligence, a soul. Because of the simplicity of God is why I've made a point that these attributes aren't all separate parts or divisions or characteristics in and of God. He is all of them at once, together, perfectly united. That means we can't rank or order his attributes. He is all of them perfectly and fully at once. And God's simplicity spills over from his being into his work, his actions, his purposes, his purpose. It's all one. Not mixed, not torn, not divided, absolute focus, never contradictory, totally unlike you and me. You know how your heart sometimes makes you want to do something, but then your head is like, no, that's not the right thing to do. And so there's conflict. And God, that never happens because of his simplicity. What are some other things this means for our lives? Well, one, one thought here is that even though we don't share in this simplicity, in this attribute, God does use language. We sing it often in the song, Hear, O Lord, and Answer. It's from Psalm 86. The prayer is, Oh God, give me an undivided heart. And this has to do with us being righteous to have our whole being singularly focused, all parts, body, soul, mind, strength, all focused on God and his ways, worshiping him in spirit and truth, um, so that our lives and hearts and everything together correspond to his purpose as purely as possible. That's not naturally how we are, and so for that to happen... To live with an undivided heart, we need the Holy Spirit's help and his assistance, and we ask for it. We need it big time. Eternity was among those incommunicable attributes, too, and it's something we're more familiar with. We're within time. God is not. And really, to even consider the eternity of God from within time we're in danger, you know, again, like I was saying, I feel like we, we are much, we much too lightly talk about God and consider God in our lives. But honestly, to even talk about him who is timeless from within time, we can be in danger of dishonoring God. We can be in danger of thinking false ideas about him. Anything related to time has to be excluded from our concept of God. But the only way we can grasp it at all is by saying stuff like God has no beginning. He has no day by day, second by second, year by year progression. And he has no end. That great name of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, that we used to translate Jehovah, That was spoken to Moses in the burning bush, and it pretty much means what we're talking about. The translation is I am, which means the one who is, who was, and who will be all at once. And the Bible 
uses that word for God, but also that he's the Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. Um, so it uses time words for us to talk about the eternal God. And so, of course, we may. But the fact is, you can't distinguish beginning and end in him. Anything spoken of in terms of time related to him, it's just for our sake. It's from our point of view. And though God, of course, can enter into time whenever he wishes, God exists unchangeably while time progresses. He transcends time. Though he may have done something in our past, is going to do something in our future, and is active presently, that doesn't mean that there's any change of time in God whatsoever. It's all from our perspective. Practically speaking, one pastor says, in light of God's eternity, basically he's like, we're just called to worship him. He says, um, we're called to acknowledge and believe that God is the one who dwells in incomprehensible eternity. We're called to lose ourselves in his eternity. We're called to worship what we can't grasp, like Abraham did in Genesis 21. He called on the name of the everlasting Lord. And another way this idea applies to us on a very personal level is though that we all have had a beginning... So that means we're never going to be eternal. It's impossible. But because we're made in God's image, and by his grace, human beings, we could say, are not eternal, but immortal in the sense that we have no ending. And that's going to be wonderful for all who belong to Jesus and call on his name because it's going to mean eternal life. But it's going to be a curse and terrible for all those who don't believe because that eternal life for them is eternal death. One more attribute in Article 1 is infinity. And to be finite is to have well-defined parameters. Uh, The earth, the world is finite. Uh, The measurement around the circumference, I think is the right word, right? Around the equator is very well-defined. It's 24,000 901 miles. If you measure it pole to pole, it's a couple, like 100 or less than 100 miles less. Kind of interesting. So at the poles, the earth is slightly flattened. Um, the earth has a radius, a mass, surface area, density, volume. God's being, God has no parameters. Uh, We'll figuratively talk about the word infinity often. Uh, Maybe the grains of sand are infinite or blades of grass, but they aren't literally infinite. Now, the stars and the galaxies appear to be a different story, right? Astronomers have not seen or found the end of the universe. From everything they've been able to determine scientifically, it goes on and on and on forever. But I suspect that it's more due to our our limitations than reality. Um, I think the universe is just really, really big, unimaginably so, but it'd be hard to convince me that it's infinite like God. We talk about infinity also in terms of numbers, mathematics, but... That's infinity in a very different sense. I I think we talk about numbers as concepts, 
And there's infinity there, uh, but God is a being who is infinite. Infinity of God's power is what we call omnipotence. He's all-powerful. Infinity of his knowledge is what we call omniscience. He's all-knowing. Infinity of time is what we talked about before, eternity. And infinity in terms of space is omnipresence. He is everywhere present, in other words. He's in heaven in his glory. He's in the church with his grace, we could say. He's in every believer with his spirit. He's in hell with his just wrath, and he's everywhere in the created universe. Jeremiah 22 says, Am I a God at hand and not a God afar off? Do I not fill heaven and earth? Acts 17, in the middle of a sermon, Paul says that God is not far from each one of us. 1 Kings 8 tells us how God not only fills heaven and earth, but he transcends them both. He can't be contained by them. Remember Job, his friends, and how they were royal pains in the rear, but God used Zophar in Job 11 to reveal God's infinity. He says, can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They're higher than the heavens. What can you do? They're deeper than the depths of the grave. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. So the answer to his question, can you probe the limits of the Almighty? Absolutely not. And, you know, you might think, boy, that doesn't seem right that for God to be present like in sort of vile places or unbecoming places, like for him to be present, is he present in the middle of a war zone? Present in hell, like I just mentioned, or a dark alley? But the reality is he does not get contaminated in the least based on where he is. Just like the sun, right? The sun illuminates everything without being affected at all couple little applications of, of God's infinity. Um, I, I feel like this means, and again, I feel like this is something we, I, I thought about more when I was younger than recently, and I think overall folks thought about this a little bit more than they do today. One application of this is that we should be conscious that we can't hide anything from God. In other words, when we sin, it's always in his presence always in his presence because of his infinity and that should be a motivation for us to want to live a life pleasing to the lord right but on the other hand sort of the other side of it those who have found refuge in jesus that infinity is not something to fear but it's a support it's a comfort for his children, he's always at hand. He's a, a, a fiery wall of protection around us. Nothing and no one can touch us contrary to his will. He's our ever-present refuge. He's always right there with us, behind us. He's before us. Psalm 23, 4 says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you couple other general 
applications uh, as, as we close here. These incommunicable attributes of God tell us that any sort of idea of God being everything, which is often called pantheism, is false. There are many forms, not all, but many forms of Hinduism believe something like that. And people with those sort of New Age or Hinduistic um, influences, you know, you'll hear people talk about we're all gods um, or nature is God. But the incommunicable attributes remind us that God is a part. He's separate. He's beyond. Uh, The creator and the creature are not one, but distinct. And these incredible attributes that we can barely begin to understand and reveal how far beyond us he is, they're ultimately used against God's enemies and those who reject him and don't call on his name and So there's a proper fear and trembling of this mighty power uh, that that people, I think, lose sight of. You know, in the Old Testament, like last week, Sunday morning with Manoah, we're doomed to die. You know, we don't have that sense, but they knew what they were talking about. I mean, they had this sense of who God is that um, maybe we forget sometimes. But we know that for all who bow down to him, who acknowledge that God as Lord of lords and seek refuge in the atonement of Jesus, those mysterious and mighty, incommunicable attributes, you know what? They're all working for us. They're working for you and me, for our good, and they should give us firmer comfort and hope and greater assurance and courage in our lives every day, all the time. Praise God. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we, we give you praise and glory for what we can't fully understand. And because you are so far beyond us, you are so great, you are so mighty, that all we can do is grasp a bit of who you are and what you've done. And you're so gracious in helping us and letting us have some sense of who you are. But Lord, uh, the end result is simply bowing down, kneeling before your throne, acknowledging you as the only one who deserves all of our praise. And so Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work in our hearts to to truly give you the glory more like you deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.